So those of you who've been with us since the start, about four months ago, uh, will know that this is the first time that I've been up here in the preacher's perch. Uh, and it's, it's nice to be here giving a sermon today. I can already say it feels good to stand two or three feet above contradiction. It's a nice place to be. So let's pray as we move into the passage today. Come Holy Spirit, these words in fire, inspire. Fill them with your celestial fire. For if you are with us, then nothing else matters. And if you are not with us, then nothing else matters. Use this imperfect preacher to bring the perfect, nourishing, and reorienting word of Christ to his people. Open our hearts to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. If you've got a Bible, please uh, open that up to Malachi chapter 2 and sort of follow along. That'll help you get more out of the sermon. Or if you've got a Bible app, you can use that as well. Today's preacher is Malachi. Malachi is not as well known as some of the other preachers in the Bible. And to be honest, when we hear what he has to say, we can understand why. See, when Malachi brings the word of the Lord, he doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't let anyone, people in the pews, or the people in the pulpit, off the hook. Without any hesitation, Malachi confronts a tendency that we all face, especially ministers sometimes. A tendency we face as we reflect on God's will for our lives. A tendency to round off the corners, to smooth off the edges. Malachi will have none of this. Sometimes the sharp corners are needed with all their pointedness and capacity to unsettle. Like most Old Testament prophets, Malachi reminds us that while God is gracious and merciful and filled with love for his creation, there's more to him than that. God is not just a big fluffy pillow that we constantly hurl ourselves into. God is also holy, and his holiness is relentless and uncompromising. And when it encroaches our lives, the lives of humans, it cannot but disrupt and unsettle and challenge because God wants people to seek him with wholehearted devotion. And so here again today for the third week, we have a somber and grave preacher in our midst. His words are appropriate for the Lenten season. They might be a bit jarring, but they summon us to exist as a people of truth, the sometimes unpleasant truth about ourselves and the always wonderful truth about God. So as we go into today's discussion, there are three things that I want to point, uh, point your attention to as we reflect on the text. Number one, the problems that Malachi confronts. Number two, the same problems today. And number three, the only real and lasting remedy to these problems. Those three things, that's what we're going to look at. The problems. The mess that Malachi confronts in chapter 2 is in many ways just a continuation of what we read about in chapter 1, bringing charges from God to his people in a very vivid way, laid out in chapter 1 as Alistair discussed the last two weeks. But there's one key difference today. Right? There's a new target audience. The interrogation light has shifted to the priests of Judah. Now, the priests of Judah, they were part of a group that's referred to in the Old Testament as the shepherds, God's shepherds. The shepherds were men who were to model their lives, uh, uh, model in their lives total love and dependence to God. Next to God himself, they played the crucial role in guiding God's people. 
Now, in Malachi chapter 2, our shepherds, our priests, have been given a subpoena. They've been dragged into the interrogation room by the prophet, and alas, it appears that they've been indicted for a severe dereliction of duty. They've dropped the ball. According to Malachi, the root cause of all these problems with the priest is a heart problem, a heart issue. See, in verse 2, you read that they weren't laying it to heart to honor the Lord. They've become lackluster in their devotion. Their reverence and their passion and their adoration for God is muted. Their fear of the Lord is lacking. Let me pause for just a moment and unpack that statement, fear of the Lord. You hear it a lot in the church, you read it a lot in the Bible, and it's easily misunderstood. Fear of the Lord, very familiar biblical phrase, uh, I think is, is well illustrated through a little case study on the life of Moses. Moses was a man who feared the Lord. Moses was out tending sheep in some obscure location in the ancient Near East, and God says, I want you to go to Egypt, go to the throne room of the most powerful king in the world at that time, and tell him to let my people go. Right, go and say that to Pharaoh, who has a huge army, who could have Moses' head put on a platter with the word of his mouth. And Moses did it because he took God more seriously than anything else. He took the power and the possibilities of what God can do more seriously than the power and the might of Pharaoh. That's fear of the Lord, taking God more seriously than anything else. When we have a deep and comprehensive acknowledgement, a reverence, a respect, and marveling at the reality of God. See, compared to God, we're air and God's water. He's more real than anything else. And so it's appropriate that we take him more seriously than anything else. So that's fear of the Lord, and that's what was not present in the priest of Judah at this time. Now, as Malachi continues on in chapter 2, he tells us that these heart issues, this lackluster devotion, this lack of fear of the Lord, have external symptoms. And these symptoms are having ruinous effects on two duties at the center of the priestly job description. Let's summarize these two symptoms with the phrases sacrificial infidelity and fraudulent instruction. Sacrificial infidelity, the, the infidelity, the priests were not representing the people to God in a worthy manner. And fraudulent instruction, the priests were not representing God to the people in an accurate manner. So let's unpack these. Sacrificial infidelity. See, among other things, the priest oversaw and administered the sacrificial system of the temple. Alistair talked a bit about this last week. It's a little bit foreign to us. The sacrificial system was a key component of the covenant relationship between Yahweh, which is the personal name of God in the Old Testament, and his people, Israel. And animal sacrifices were vital in keeping the relationship between a holy God and an unholy people going. Right, these, these sacrificial system and these sacrifices were a tool for maintaining the relationship, a relationship which was always being strained by the presence of sin among God's people. Right, God's kind of like fire. The people are kind of like water. They can't coexist. One will, out, will uh, consume the other, and in this case, God will consume the people, right? So there, there has to be some way of mediating the relationship. Now, there's two things you need to know about the sacrificial system if you're going to appreciate what Malachi is critiquing here. The first, Alistair talked a bit about this last week, is that the people were to bring their prized animals, right? the ones that won best in show last year like Tad's Poodle. Okay? Right? That was what was to be devoted as an offering to God. So these sacrifices weren't about feeding God. Right? God doesn't need to eat. 
God's blood sugar never gets low. God never gets hangry like Alistair, right? It was more about giving, costly, contrite giving as a concession made by people to help reestablish and maintain relational harmony, right? Similar to what you and I might do as we navigate conflict with people that we love very much and want to reconcile. We make concessions to kind of keep the relationship going, something like that. That's the first thing, prized animals. Second thing, within the sacrificial system, the priest acted as mediators and advocates for the people. Right? They represented the people before God, like a lawyer would represent you in a courtroom. Right? This is why the high priest was decked out with beautiful stones, all the wealth of Israel on his chest plate there, these 12 beautiful stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. He represented the people to God. And in the process of doing that, they handled the sacrifices. But they, the priests weren't just, uh, uh, you know, kind of butchers and meat handlers, right? They were quality control officers. They were people who approved the sacrifices, who deemed them to be befitting of God. In fact, it was a non-negotiable of the priestly job description that their approval of sacrifices was to be reflective of the very, very exacting standards that you find in the book of Leviticus about what type of sacrifices would be appropriate the prized animals, the best, because the God that you meet in the Old Testament will settle for nothing less than your best, nothing second rate. This is one of the great spiritual truths at the center of the sacrificial system. So against this background, we can begin to get a better sense of the spiritual pollution that Malachi is railing against. Right? We, we read in chapter 1 that the people were bringing subpar, or to put it crassly, pathetic and crappy sacrifices to the temple. Right, that's what they were offering. And the priest, in acts of scandalous sacrificial infidelity, were sort of co-conspirators in this state of affairs. They were giving their stamps of approval to subpar sacrifices. And giving that stamp of approval from a priest, getting that, would mistakenly and misleadingly believe someone to believe that God was actually accepting of that sacrifice, which was not true. One-eyed goats, three-legged bulls, Animals long past their prime, the type of stuff that put McDonald's puts in their chicken nuggets, right? That's what people were bringing to the temple, okay? Now, the priest's failure in this regard cannot be reduced down to complicity, right? They weren't just meat handers, right? They were quality control officers. They were people who were commissioned to uphold the integrity and the honor and the holiness of God, right? Making sure that everything was befitting. And so what does that mean? It means they weren't just complicit. It means they were compromised, perhaps even crooked. And so they are especially culpable and blameworthy before God. So that's the first problem. The second problem we call fraudulent instruction. So in addition to running a sacrificial system that was the sort of equivalent of the Thenardier's boarding house in Les Mis, right, the priests were failing in another key area, right, the task of spiritual and moral instruction for God's people. And scholars suggest that this problem is really at the center of Malachi chapter 2, 1 through 9. Right? This problem also has everything to do with the first problem. The priests hadn't been teaching people about the standards of God, and so that's why they were bringing pathetic sacrifices. Right? So the problems are connected. And in verse 6 and 7, what we read is Malachi echoing more than 10 centuries of unambiguous teaching about the role of God's priests as teachers of God's law. What did this entail? In a nutshell, this is what it entailed. Priests were to be people who told the truth 
even when it was unpopular. They were to be people who neither tolerated nor practiced spiritual deception, even when it might be expedient or pragmatic. They were people who lived lives of integrity, modeling the holiness of God in their own lives, not just talking about it. And they were to be people who counseled and corrected God's people when their lifestyles veered away from God's revealed will. So in short, the priests were kind of like messengers of God. In fact, the word, the Hebrew word in verse 7b that we translate as messenger is the same word as angel. Right? They were messengers of God. And they were to be utterly impartial and trustworthy in handling God's word. They were not to foster confusion, right? They were to bring clarity and poignancy to God's law. Right? They were not to become rusty in the ways of God, but to be vigilant in guarding and disseminating God's word. Tall order. It's a tall order. According to Malachi, the chief shepherds, the priest of God's people, in his moment in time, had failed in this commission in a dire and appalling way. Right? Against the simple but emphatic dictates of their job description, they were causing God's people to stumble, verse 8, and they were dishonoring God's character through partiality and favoritism, verse 9. Now, the gravity of these two interrelated offenses is more than sufficiently stressed by the judgment that Malachi is commanded to bring. And here's where things get nasty, literally. See, systematic sacrificial infidelity and fraudulent instruction are not trivial problems in God's eyes. Right? The people that should be serving God have become the people who are offending God. The priests who are abasing and despising God, they will now be abased and despised, as verse 9 says. Now, God's judgment here isn't arbitrary. It reflects the standards of the covenant, which you can go and read this afternoon in Deuteronomy 28, where God says, if you're a priest in my people, in my covenant, this is your sort of job responsibility. And if you breach that responsibility, then there's a consequence. And here's what it is. Right? So what's the punishment? The first punishment uh, we, we come to a somewhat grotesque a gesture here. God threatens to spread dung on the faces of the priest. That's like a bucket of water in the face, huh? What's this about, right? Is this some sort of juvenile, divine comeback, like a child might say to his friend with whom he's angry, poo on you? Unless they were my child, then they would say feces on ye, right? So, no, that's not what it is. Right? The, the Hebrew word here refers to entrails, right? the, in, uh, the intestines and, and inner parts of the animal. All this stuff would be excavated before the animal was sacrificed, excavated out of the animal's body, and then it would be taken out of the temple compound and out of the city wall and burned because it was considered unclean, dirty, and unfit to be in the presence of a holy God. And so the significance is this, right? God is saying all that stuff, that unclean stuff, is going to be plastered on the faces of the priest, Right? Because the priests, right, who were supposed to be the agent of a whole sacrificial system that dealt with the spiritual pollution in Israel, have instead become the source of the spiritual pollution. The irony here is absolutely scathing. It's a zinger, right? It's a zinger, the poetic justice, great example of poetic justice. So the priests are going to be tossed out, just like the entrails and the dung. But there's more, right? There's also what we read about in verse 3b, where Malachi speaks about the seed being rebuked or the offspring being rebuked. There's a lot of debate about what that means, and I think the, the best interpretation is that, is that it's going to be some sort of divine curse on the, on the, the, the kingdom's agrarian agricultural output. It's going to be sort of stunted agricultural growth. 
And what this shows is that, you know, the conduct of the priests not only affects themselves negatively, but also the people, right? It affects the whole economy, and everyone's well-being and, and livelihood suffers because of the unfaithfulness and infidelity of God's shepherds, right? As goes the leaders, so go the people, right? That's, that's the logic here. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Malachi rests his case. Is the guilt of the accused not glaringly apparent? Is not condemnation warranted? Take a deep breath. Ah, you say, aren't we glad that we don't live in that time? Not so fast. Nudge your snoozing neighbor because things are about to heat up. Right? If Malachi were preaching in our times, I think he'd have plenty of somber criticisms to make. Not just for you, but especially for me and all those who are pastors and ministers or priests in God's church. See, the same problem, same problems that Malachi points out, they, they continue to exist today, albeit in slightly different forms. Let's not be deceived. I find it helpful to group all the offenses that we've just surveyed under the heading of CSD, Compromised Shepherd Disease. You've probably not heard of this one. If you're a minister, you learn about it in seminary. Right? And let's just say that compromised shepherd disease, like malaria, is not fully eradicated. It's not been fully eradicated. It still rears its ugly head from time to time in God's people, both on the conservative end of the spectrum and on the liberal end of the spectrum. Right? There are still priests who tolerate and even embrace sacrifices that are unworthy of God. There are still ministers who don't handle God's word truthfully, causing God's sheep to stumble. What do I mean? Let's look at a few case studies. There was an outbreak of CSD in the United States and Alabama and other places in the 1960s. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail provides a wonderful case study of this problem. This letter, if you've read it, you'll know was written to clergy. It was written to ministers and pastors, and specifically to clergies who were exponents of a severely compromised teaching from God's Word. Keep in mind the circumstances in which Martin Luther King Jr. wrote, right? The circumstances in which his prophetic voice echoed were filled with all sorts of deplorable events. It was not uncommon in parts of the states in the 40s, 50s, and even 60s, not just in the South, for men and women to rush from their church on Sunday morning to go to, go to a Sunday afternoon lynching. And the pastor would be there to endorse and celebrate and even bless it. I've seen the pictures. Evidently, God's word was not being proclaimed. No one seemed to remember Jesus' teaching about loving and praying for your enemies, even those that you mistakenly view as your enemies. From the vantage point of those types of clergy, those compromised shepherds, Martin Luther King Jr.'s activities were called, quote, unwise and untimely. They asked him to cease and desist in his nonviolent opposition. They told King to wait. You need to wait. It takes more time. But he knew that on their mouth, wait always meant never. And that's why he wrote this. We've waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. Perhaps it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you've seen the vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you've seen hate-filled policemen 
curse and kick and kill your black brothers and sisters. And when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you experience all of this, then perhaps you'll understand why it's difficult to wait. See, King wouldn't tolerate the fraudulent instruction of God's priest. That's why he said, in the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon us, I've watched churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. And they say to themselves, these are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. Really. Perhaps the priests of Malachi's time made similarly pitiful excuses. Perhaps they said of the sacrificial specimens, these animals are just going to die. Why use the best? We need to keep our flocks strong. We're in hard times after all. Of course, they wouldn't have said that if they were making beef brisket for the governor, as Malachi points out in chapter 1, verse 8. Perhaps they said of God's law, it's too difficult, it's too demanding, it's too unreasonable. We need to tone it down. Moderation in all things. We need to be realistic. We need to be pragmatic. We must decide what is appropriate and acceptable. Let's make things a bit more personal. One further case study of CSD. Let's do a bit of self-examination. If Malachi were standing right here, what might he say? It's a frightening thought, isn't it? As you well know, we don't do the animal sacrifice thing anymore except on the summer barbecue. But that certainly doesn't mean that sacrifices have ceased. In Romans 12, St. Paul introduces a game changer. He tells us that people who know and love Jesus Christ should offer their lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. From one angle, this is hard, perhaps even more difficult than the sacrificial requirements of the Old Testament because God wants every single aspect of our lives brought into submission to his perfect and pleasing and goodwill. Our money, our bodies, our personalities, our brokenness, some of us even cling to that. Our ambitions, the way we handle conflict, our dreams and deepest desires, our humor, our work, our marriages, our friendships. We don't like that word submission, especially when it requires sacrifice. We're prone to gravitate towards churches and ministers that will keep things mellowed and watered down. Pastors that will be reasonable, who will tell us what we want to hear. Pastors who are more inclined to pander to our preferences than to convey God's will, however imperfectly they may do it. And pastors, for our part, can all too, be, all too easily be swayed to leap into that role, to pander, to compromise, to forget that while we work and serve a congregation, we answer to God. And so we leap into a role sometimes where we don't really want to challenge and correct using God's word. Right? A role where we reduce church to entertainment and motivational speech because that's what people want. A role where we skip over the unpleasant parts of God's word instead of speaking the whole counsel of God, which is the commandment of Acts. A role where we don't ask irksome questions such as, do you really think it's wise to marry such and such a person? Or perhaps the pain you're experiencing isn't the result of victimization. Perhaps it's also somewhat the result of your folly, of unconfessed sin. Perhaps a bit of repentance is in order. You won't hear a psychologist say that very much. Or perhaps we don't want to tell people that, are you sure God would have you refrain from giving of your time and money 
until you get more established. A role which doesn't want to talk much about the reality of sin in each of our lives and often permits respectable sins to quietly exist in the church. Sins such as a lack of self-control which brought down the mighty King Solomon. Sins of impatience and irritability. Sins of envy which led to the demise of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. Sins of the tongue. Gossip and slander that rolls off the lips so easily and then goes on to ravage lives and communities. Yet those types of questions are all the things you should expect from a pastor who's committed to faithfulness and obedience and instructing God's people. These are the things you should expect from a pastor who knows that God wants your life and every part of it to be a living sacrifice, pleasing and holy. Pastors who know that a sacrificial mode of life is actually the only path to true and lasting freedom and joy. Many of us, unfortunately, are accustomed to church cultures where this vision of the pastor and the priest is, is often interpreted as being overzealous and fanatical. It's excessively religious, even though it reflects very clearly a biblical understanding of, in part, what it means to be in a relationship with God and to be growing in grace and in transformation. Now, permit me a moment of self-disclosure. You can be sure that Malachi and God and not me are preaching to you today. Over the past few weeks as I've been preparing for this sermon, I've become increasingly aware that there's more CSD in me than I care to admit. See, went to the doctor a few weeks ago. It's a dour report. More than I care to admit, I'm inclined as the same shortcomings that God unmasked in the priest through Malachi. See, as a minister, I struggle with the temptation to water things down, to minimize things that are serious, to keep the peace even when it's cheap. I struggle with the temptation to exhibit a certain latitude in spiritual and moral matters that sometimes leaves me uneasy when I really examine my motives and who I'm trying to please. I struggle against that sentimental form of love which likes to tell people that everything is okay, even when it's not. I forget that real love must sometimes challenge the great truth behind the proverb which says the wound of a friend can be trusted. The fear of man or people-pleasing or the impulse towards pragmatism and even pastoral sloth always seem to be waiting in the rafters, poised to creep in and tarnish my integrity as a minister. And I know this is true for many of my companions in the ministry. We talk about it, we wrestle with it, we confess it, and we see that Malachi's indictment could very well apply to us in certain ways at certain moments. Now, this disclosure could undermine your confidence in your pastor and minister, just like Malachi's prophecy could undermine all confidence in God's priest. But that's not what it aims to do. There's a larger purpose at play here. It can be a, this, all of this can be applied to a larger, more glorious purpose, redirecting our gaze to the only remedy, the only real and lasting remedy for all these problems. In Romans chapter 5, St. Paul says this, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Beautiful words. Never a better moment to cling to that than right now. When you consider the problems that are laid out in Malachi 2 in the context of the broader Old Testament witness, you'll see that they fit with a general trend. Many of Israel's priests at various points in her history fell into waywardness. CSD was an endemic phenomenon. 
The priestly system actually took this for granted, which is why every priest who offered a sacrifice could only do so after he offered a personal sacrifice for his own sins. Cleansing was always mandated, even for the most pious and holy priest. In a similar manner, even your most faithful and obedient pastors are still fully human, beset by the flaws and struggles that are common to mankind. They may be called to bring you spiritual and moral instruction and guidance, but we will always do that as people who at some point or another get beside you on our knees and confess our brokenness, our sinfulness, our self-centeredness, and our lack of trust in God. No priest, no pastor ever has possessed the spiritual integrity and innate holiness to approach God and to mediate his forgiveness and his love and his presence on their own two feet, except one, except one. And God himself sent this one, for where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. The book of Hebrews, chapter 7 and 8, tell us about a perfect priest, a priest who is distinct from all others. This priest is of the order of Melchizedek, which is just a way of saying that he's totally unique totally faultless, totally without compromise. In him, there is no sacrificial infidelity. There is no fraudulent instruction. This priest is one who at all times and in every way is devoted to God. His desire to honor and reverence God is laid out deeply in his heart. There's no inner dissent or inconsistency in this. He's a priest who doesn't pander. And he's fully trustworthy to instruct broken and sinful and messy human lives in the way of righteousness, to direct our feet to the paths of joy and life. This is a priest who brought a perfect living sacrifice. In fact, his entire life, his every ambition, his dreams, his longings, even his flesh and his blood to God whom he called Father. This is a priest who did all of this because he loves you. He loves us. He loves us with all of our flaws, with all of our shortcomings and screw-ups, and he wants to share life with us now and forever. Friends, this truth surpasses every sense of internal or external rejection which might seem to subject you. This is the great truth about which all of Scripture sings. Who is this priest? This great high priest, as Hebrews calls him, came down from heaven. He came not just from anywhere in heaven, but from the throne room of God. And when he came, he wore the face of Jesus of Nazareth. He entered into the mess of human history, into the priestly office of the sacrificial system. And he showed us that the system of priests and sacrifices with all the compromises and inadequacies and failures in it was not primarily given. That system was not primarily given to reconcile us to God. The elephant in the room, after all, is that it didn't work. It didn't really work that well. The Old Testament sacrificial system, when you read it in light of what the book of Hebrews says, was no more capable of achieving ultimate reconciliation with God than a ban on cigarettes will deal with global warming or a calcium pill will take care of bone cancer. As we say back where I'm from, that dog won't hunt. Maybe... The sacrificial system was given to show us that our default position as humans in this world is a position of needing to be reconciled to God. Maybe the system was showing that we need a mediator and an advocate before God. Maybe the flaws and imperfections in the system were permitted and endured by God simply to deter us 
from self-reliance and trying to put our relationship with him back to rights. Maybe the sacrificial system and all the priests, that system was divinely orchestrated in us uh, to stir up a longing and an expectation for God's self-initiative to remedy our estrangement from him, to make our hearts sing like all the prophets of the Old Testament that salvation is from the Lord. And it is, because that's what Jesus does. He's the true high priest before and after and in spite of all others who is our advocate and mediator before God. This is not a thing of the past. This is not a historical recollection. This is not a pleasant idea. Right? This is a present and powerful reality. Do you know it? Do you know it? The pastor who knows this will be what I call an Eisenheim altarpiece pastor. He or she knows that the best thing that they can do is to point away from themselves and to Christ, just like John the Baptist. I must decrease that he might increase. The congregant who knows this will lay it up in their hearts that their real trust, their real security, lies not in their minister or their priest, however faithful and trustworthy he or she may be, but in Jesus Christ, their actual and eternal advocate, the true priest, the one who brings them into the family of God with all the joy and hope and love therein.